0: How's it going everybody welcome back to 19 year old shrink we have our first returning guest today actually my father james john grande he's a financial advisor and co-founder of altium wealth management in purchase new york which was founded back in 2010 last talk we had i said we aren't going to be talking too much about finance but today is the day that we do uh, because i think it's so important to understand building financial freedom because it has such a spillover effect into other areas of our life And today, we'll learn about the good and bad habits that we might have when it comes to money and how to start spending more time focusing on the good ones, and also learning the importance of the compounding effect as it relates to money, and also just saving, investing, and just having a better understanding of our financial world in general. And being a college kid, uh, this has become more important as I've gotten older, definitely. So this is great to hear for all ages, no matter how young. So thanks for joining, Dad. Sure. Thanks for having me, Will. Excited to be back. Great. So uh, the first question I have for you is like, money means a lot of different things to different people. So what does money mean to you? To me, um,
1: money means really uh, security and and probably freedom, right? I think money is a means to an end. It allows you to To do things for other people allows, personally for me, it allows me to help people and it allows me to really have that security to know that that I can live a comfortable life without worrying about running out of money. So it's a really money is just a means to an end. It's not really the end in and of itself. It's that security and freedom that it gives you and for me the ability to help other people.
0: And how did you start out in the industry? And I get teased a lot
1: uh, I, by my partners about this um, <laughs> I, I got out of University of Maryland with a degree in finance uh, I had not had any internships I was good at math and I I, I like people a lot right and I got a call in the caddy house um, I'd caddy for 10 years over the summers and all of a sudden the phone rings and I said hey James it's uh, it's a call for you call for me what are you talking about and it was a, a friend of the family Marty Glenn Marty. Um, it was my mom's roommate from college's son. He was from Plattsburgh, New York. Uh, it was odd that he'd be calling. We didn't speak that often on the phone, and it was odd that he would be called. Something was so urgent that he would have to, couldn't wait till I got home that night. He had to call me that morning, and he says, Hey, Jane, I got a two bedroom apartment, two miles from downtown Burlington. It's got a, a fireplace. End of the complex is Lake Champlain. Your share of the rent is $291 a month. Uh, do you want to move to Burlington, Vermont? And I said, you know, I think I do. You know, I, I was looking in other industries. I had a job, a potential job opportunity selling um, paper in the paper industry. And I, I just really wasn't excited about that. It was 1990. The economy was tanking all over the place. I saw IBM employees at 50 years old uh, saying, you know, losing their jobs, watching their stock go from $160 a share to $40 a share. And I said, the last thing I want to be is 50 years old working for somebody and having my destiny um, in the hands of somebody else. And so uh, so what happened was I moved to Vermont. I had my little finance degree from University of Maryland. I mm-hmm. had my resume and my briefcase and my my suit. And um, one of my neighbors said, you know, you should look into life insurance or financial services. And um, I called my dad up and, and I said, you know, what do you think of that? And he said, that's the perfect career for you. So I I, I got my resume, I started knocking on doors in in Burlington, Vermont, and the first place I walked into was Mutual of New York, or Money Financial Services, it was in a beautiful building that was uh, connected to the Burlington Square Mall, and it had the offices overlooked Lake Champlain and the Adirondack Mountains, yeah, yeah, exactly, and I walk in there, I said, hey, I just moved to town, Um, I just graduated college, I'm looking to start my career, Um, is there somebody I could speak to? and um and the woman uh that the office manager at the time, Carol Fox, uh, said, "Let me put you in touch with the manager and she put me in touch with the manager, and they basically offered me a job on the spot and I was excited and except that you know the the job was no salary um and um an opportunity to earn commissions and and get into this business but i I called my dad once again and he said, Listen, that's going to be great for you. Just you know go with that and uh and that's it, it, so I kind of Fell into it by accident, but I did know, I, I think intuitively I knew when I got out of college that I was unemployable. And what I, meant, I didn't mean I wasn't capable of working for, you know, getting a job, it was more fr- freedom of my time and independence was always such an important thing for me um, and, and why it was important for me. Um, I, you know, my, my senior year in college, I, uh, three of my friend's fathers died and i kept coming back for funerals and and i wanted to be able to um have that flexibility when i was working to show up for people and uh and and this career afforded me that opportunity to do that so i wouldn't have to worry about do i take one of my 10 days a year off that i was given if i was working for somebody else or if i was working kind of for myself i could just be like well if somebody's important to me i'm gonna be there for them so um i I just I was really in a in a situation where i knew i was unemployable every job i had like caddying or bartending prior to that allowed me the flexibility to work hard but also come and go as i please and i think that was important to me and at the time this business allowed that for me
0: yeah and i think that's where a lot of like businesses are going now especially after covid and everything like with like the classic nine to five you're starting to see everything's kind of changing yeah is great And also like when you started out, I mean, you're dealing with a very important part of people's lives and you were really young, as I mentioned, how do you build trust with people, especially if they're a lot older than you and they're putting trust in this young kid with their money? Or did you start out with younger clients? Like how does that work? So interesting.
1: So what what they did, they, they helped me a little bit at Mutual of New York. There were all these, what they called orphan clients, like people that it might have been a client of somebody else that either failed out of the business, left the business, left the company. And I had the opportunity to call on them and help review their insurances and things like that. But that was a big challenge, truthfully. I'm 22. I'm single. I don't know anybody you know, in Vermont. And I don't know any really anything about what I'm doing, yeah. right? <laughs> so I, I took a lot of lumps. Like, I, I, I knew it was the right career for me. But who's going to, I mean, who in that right mind is going to really trust somebody? I wouldn't trust me. Right? <laughs> you know, I, I, in a, in, I, I go back and forth on this because, you know, at Altium, we we bring young people along. We don't expect them to go find clients. We kind of groom them, teach them. They learn the business from the ground up. Whereas I had to kind of teach it to myself and go out and find my own clients and learn how to be good technically. And and it was, it was a real challenge. It took me... Just to put it in perspective, and we're not dealing in the Stone Ages um, in the 1990s. But but it took me five years to learn how to make thirty thousand dollars in this business, right, in a year, right? So I I struggled, and when I you know I did it, the first two years were in Vermont, and, and I I went home after that um to white plains and i caddied on the weekends i barred, I did whatever i could to stay in the business because i loved the business it's a great business and i knew that i would be good at it someday but what you're asking is a real challenge who's going to trust a 22 year old single guy with their money that does, you know just because i had a degree in finance in the university of maryland
0: i that didn't matter you know people people want to know that you really know what you're doing and i know you just mentioned altium and like the process with like Younger people now, and how you didn't have that. What sets Altium apart from other financial firms out there? So when you
1: when you look at a website, right, it doesn't tell you as much about the culture of a company as you might think, right? So a lot of a lot of companies say the same things, they do the same things that that, that we may do when you look at it on the surface. But when we started Altium, we asked, what would we want if we were our clients, right? And and a lot at the time in 2010, the industry was m- making this move towards being fiduciaries for your clients and i can explain that later Um, but really people were looking for advice they really weren't looking for products or investments those have become commoditized meaning a lot of people want to invest in index funds because there are low fees and 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 just let me invest in the s p 500 and let it grow but really what people are looking for not the investments they were looking for the advice right and they want to know things like can i live my life comfortably without the fear of running out of money If that's not an issue, how do I protect this money for the next generation, like for my kids and my grandkids? And then the third thing is, how should my money be invested to make sure my financial plan is successful? Where Altium sets ourselves apart is um, we built a business based on unique ability, and we built a business that has the same process for each and every client, that's consistent and unique, and we cross every T and we dot every I, And then we also become an accountability partner for our our clients. So I'll explain what I mean by all of those things. So unique ability, um, the four founders or three of the four founders of our company had prior to starting out, they had gone to this entrepreneurial coaching program called Strategic Coach. And they talked about building a great business. And they said, you build a business based on unique ability which is doing what you do what you know if you do what you do all day long that that you're best at like nobody can do it as well as you or you're unique at that you you know you've been working in your
0: unique ability that's what i just talked about in the last episode i mean i was talking to you about it too like when i was making the last episode about like surrounding yourself with people that like have strengths where you have weaknesses and that seems like it's kind of what altium's like right so so we had um so we
1: we did that um we built a business based on unique ability so there were certain people that one of my partners that started the firm he he was failing out of the business and um, what we recognized with unique ability his unique ability is actually explaining complex concepts to people in a way that's easy to understand and helps people take action He, you know, most of the financial services industry, at least at the time, was very salesy. And I, myself, I'm more of a business development type, sales-oriented, relational person. This person, my partner Jim, he's really smart, he's really calm, and he's very patient. And he's able to explain things in a way to people that gives them that confidence that he knows what he's doing, and it's easy to understand and helps people take action. So what we've done is we've broken out the planning process for different... Different skill sets. So somebody like myself is very relational is going to connect to people and make them feel safe and secure. Right. Then there's going to be other analytical people on my team that are going to ask all the detail oriented questions about the facts. To make sure we understand somebody's financial situation correctly and then we're able to organize people's information in a way that's clear and it's easy for them to understand and then we help answer those questions that we were talking about before you know will i have enough money to live comfortably without running out of it how do i protect this for the next generation how should my investments be managed so we have portfolio managers once we help people with their financial plan. Then we have people that are CFAs, Charter Financial Analysts, that it's a very difficult designation to get. It takes several years to get. But they are, it's basically like getting a master's in portfolio management and design. And um, and we have the, the CFAs come in to help look at the person's portfolio, analyze the fees they're paying, analyze if it's diversified properly, and help people basically build the investment portfolio to serve the purpose of their plan. So why are we different? I think because we've, we've created a process that's consistent and unique, we cross every T and dot every I in somebody's financial world, whether we're looking at their insurances, their wills, their trust, we're looking to protect money for state taxes and things like that. And, and we're, we deal with busy, successful people, right? And so the hardest part for them is not if they're capable of doing a lot of the work that we do, it's really they don't take the time to get stuff done because they're busy building their business or building their wealth. So we're that accountability partner to keep them on track to accomplish the things that they say that they wanna do. So in in some ways we're coach and psychologists, in some ways we're investment advisors, in some ways we're just accountability partners to make sure that they get everything done that they wanna get done. So I think it's not just one thing that separates us, it's the the attention and detail and the combined experience where a lot of firms might say that they do it, but they don't have people that just specialize in each of those different areas and bring it together in a way that the clients when they when they sit through our process, they go, I've never experienced anything like this before.
0: You know, so I can't explain it in one thing. It's a lot of things. Can you can you like describe your part of this process? Because you know, from what you've told me and the questions that you ask your clients, I think It really makes it seem, or like it shows how it's more about lifestyle and how money is more related to just your life in general and like achieving all your goals. And I think that that like the questions that you asked like really stand out to me. So for people that might be listening, can you just describe like that dialogue between your clients? Sure. Thanks, Will. Yeah. The um one of the
1: one of the things we learned in this coaching program up in Toronto, and I got to give credit to Dan Sullivan who started the Strategic Coach. He's, he's a brilliant person, and and he lays things out for entrepreneurs in a fantastic way. But one of the things he took us through is a series of questions to ask that help build trust, and um and that's one of my you know, strengths anyways building trust with people, but he gave a real clear way of doing that. And so when I sit down with somebody for the first time, I'm like, thank, you know, I first thank them for taking the time to, to meet with us. And then I, I, I kind of hit them right between the eyes and not always ready for this question. I said, you know, I find that a lot of times people make decisions around money uh, emotionally and they justify them rationally. And so it's really important for us to understand where you're coming from. So let me ask you, if we were sitting here three years from now and we were looking back. What kind of things have to happen in your life? It could be personally, professionally, financially, and with your family for you to say, you know what, James? If my life looks like this three years from now, I'll be really happy with my progress. It would be a really successful three years. Now, sometimes people have trouble answering that question. Sometimes people say, I'm really happy now. I just don't want anything to change. Depending on how they answer that question, I'm still going to ask the following question. So once I get an understanding of where what, what, what's really important to people, then I'll ask them, okay, what dangers do we need to protect against that can get in the way of you either having that life that you're describing right now or keeping the life that you have that you love so much, right? And so they'll go through all the things that are concerning them, whether it's about their, their kids, their finances, their job, the markets, their health, whatever it is, they're going to talk about the things that, that concern them. And then I'll pause at that moment and say, okay, well, let's assume for a second that together we can create a plan that's going to protect you to the greatest extent possible against a lot of these different obstacles or challenges that you're concerned about. What opportunities then can present themselves for you and your family, right? And, and sometimes they don't really know, know what I mean by that question, and sometimes they do, but they'll say, you know, I'll say to them, well, let's assume money isn't an issue for you. Right? You have all the money. What would your life look like? Would it be any different than it is now? So we want to get an understand of really what what does money mean to people, right? Uh, and, and I might ask that question. Money means a lot of things to a lot of people. What's money mean to you? Do, it does mean a lot of things, different things to different people. And then I'll ask them, what are the biggest strengths that they have that we need to capitalize or maximize to help them accomplish their goals? It could be I have a great marriage. I have a great work ethic. I'm on the same page with my spouse. It could be a lot of, I'm disciplined, I'm a good saver, um, I live within my means. It could be a lot of different strengths that they have that we want to make sure that we're capitalizing on. But what's most important is me to understand the person I'm sitting with and how they view themselves and how we can best help them. So they're going to tell you, really, this is really what what I need. And so that's 45 minutes. So a lot of people end up, you know, advisors might talk about, their company and how great they are and all the different things they do. I don't talk about that for the first 45 minutes unless they really push me and say, hey, tell me what you do, right? Tell me about what you do. But really, I, I really like to get to know them first. And, and a lot of times people will say to me when they start opening up, I have people cry on first meetings. Really? People will, say, yeah, people will say to me, I can't believe I'm telling you this the first time I met you. And so it really is a series of questions that I think build trust. And you know you have to actually be a trustworthy person, right? When mm-hmm. you're asking these questions, and 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 I think people sense that that I'm, you know, that I care about.
0: Them. Yeah, you can't be like a weirdo,
1: right? Well, there's the saying, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's, a, there's a saying: people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And I think our process is designed to demonstrate that we care before we demonstrate how great we think we are, yeah. right?
0: And with like the three year process, how often do you? stay in touch with them because i know like with your like you're in sales and like it's not like a transactional thing it's not like a one and done like oh you know you sell that and then it's over like you have to continue to keep like in touch with them so how often do you keep in touch to make sure they're on pace with like their goals
1: well because we have a team-based approach great question but because we have a team-based approach you know there's different people on the team that'll play different roles right so um, so mo- even though I, um, I'm the relational type person, right? I have my certified financial planner, but I'm not really doing the technical planning work anymore. I did it for many years. I don't. I'm really there to to drive business to the company, but I stay involved in the process and the meetings. But depending on what is typically needed on certain review meetings. Um, we'll have the right team members there, whether it's the actual planning partner, the portfolio manager. The real, sometimes I'm on all the review meetings. Sometimes I'm on some of them. But we have a, are part of our process because when we, when we started the company, we said, what would we want if we were our clients? And where do we see the industry broken? One of the things that we, you know, addressing your question, we thought that the industry did a lousy job of, Staying in touch with their clients and making sure that they were meeting with them regularly. So part of our, we're very process oriented company and we said, let's make sure that we're reaching out to schedule. You know, some people will ask them what, you know, what's a good cadence for you as far as how often do you want to meet? Some people it's quarterly, some people it's semi-annually, some people it's annually. Sometimes we meet with them annually to look over their overall financial plan, but when they have their money invested with us, we'll do quick review calls with them quarterly to just let them know how it's going. But we have a team in place that is there to reach out to the clients and then I just personally will periodically just check in on them to see how things are going, you know, how the experience has been, etc.
0: And like what are some of the most common mistakes that you've made or you've seen maybe not your clients or just other people make? regarding their money
1: well one that's a that's a good question so there's there's a lot of different mistakes right i think they have a dis many people have a disjointed approach to looking at their money and that's not really a mistake that people make consciously or anything like that they just don't know that there's something out there that can actually coordinate and integrate the different moving pieces right so people might have their insurance people their life insurance people their property casualty insurance people they have their accountant; that does their taxes they have their attorney that does their wills their investment advisor, none of them speak to each other. And so what happens is the lack of coordination and integration can create problems that you don't even realize. And so people have things that slip through the cracks and they don't know, they don't really know that things are slipping through the cracks. And and unless somebody like me or our firm steps in and sits in the center with the client, to educate them on what's going on there they might be exposed to risk maybe they don't have the right amount of life insurance maybe they're um maybe they don't have an umbrella policy to protect like an umbrella policy wraps around your car and homeowner's insurance so like if i got in a car accident and killed somebody and their family sued me right um if my car insurance only had a hundred thousand dollars of liability coverage on it but I was worth several million dollars and I didn't, uh, they could sue me for that several million dollars and maybe get it, right? But if I have an umbrella policy for several million dollars, that, that kind of protects me a bit, right? So sometimes we just see disjointed coverages. So we see people that don't have enough life insurance. And, and the way we look at life insurance is you wanna have what's called your human life value. So if somebody's making $250,000 a year and they're in their 30s, we would say, well, if they, they were killed, they had young children, right? What lump sum of money would generate that $250,000 a year for the family? Somewhere around $5, $6, 7000000 is the amount that would generate that income for the family to replace what was lost. Oftentimes, we'll see people that make $250,000 and $1 million, maybe 2 maybe half a million dollars of coverage. So things like that. But also just people don't get in the habit of... Of, of paying themselves first by saving. They might put money in a 401k, right? But then they don't build up liquidity and, um, and they just spend without really creating a budget, right? Um, I think it's really important to look at your income and really focus on a, a saving goal first because when you save early and often, you really can, the compounding effect does take an effect and makes life a lot easier. So there's a saying, right? We talk about hard, easy. When you make the hard decisions first, okay, everything is easy later. And what I mean is the hard decision is when I get a raise, right? If I'm an employee somewhere and I get a raise and I, instead of saying, let me buy a bigger house or let me buy a better car, I say, let me take that raise and save it and put it away versus, um, the easy decision, which is, oh, I'm going to get a new car. I'm going to go do this new thing. What happens is when you keep making that easy decision, the thing you want in the short term, the long term becomes a lot harder, right? So what we really help people with is getting, one of the things we help people with is getting the discipline to, to build that security for themselves.
0: So can you like describe the power of the compounding effect? Sure.
1: Compounding effect is in, in any aspect of your life, right? It could be calories that you take in and eat, the you know the money that you save, or just the habits that you do. If you want to do 100 push-ups a day over a period of time, you're gonna you're gonna develop a great great body and physique after a period of time. But with money, right? What what one of the bigger mistakes, getting back to mistakes, is for young younger people to wait to start saving, right? When you're in your 20s, you want to go out, you want to have fun, you want to party, you want to do things, which is all great. But I would say the cost of waiting can be really significant, right? So I just took a look at the S&P 500 returns, and they gave them in 30-year clips, and all of those 30-year clips were between like 9.6 and 10.6 percent over the, you know, from like 26 to 56, from 1956 to 86, and 86 to 2016. So I'd I say let's just say for a second that the S&P 500 averaged 10 percent a year returns over that period of time. Over the last hundred years pretty much so if we if we said okay when i get out of college i'm, I'm going to wait six or seven years i'm going to have fun in my 20s and then i'll start saving right and at, and at 29 years old you start saving five thousand dollars a year into an investment account that that is in the s p 500 index so we'll just buy the s p 500 and it averages 10 percent a year so if i if i do that for 33 years so from when i'm 29 to age 62 5,000 each and every year earning 10% for 33 years would have grown to $1,111,257. However, if I started at age 22 years old and saved that same $5,000 a year, so it would have been an extra $35,000 that I saved or put away. But if I did it for 40 years, right, because I started at 22 and went to age 62, putting the same 5,000, earning the same 10% a year, instead of having 1.1 million when I was at 62 years old I'd have two million two hundred and twelve thousand nine hundred and sixty three dollars right so double the amount of money by waiting seven years it cost me half of my wealth so the compound effect the longer you invest and you're building up that money for the the greater all the growth is in the last 7, 10, 15 years. It's all towards the end. So for a while, you might just seem like you're doing nothing. And then all of a sudden, things start to take off. So the habits have to start earlier and be consistent. And then over time, you have to have the patience and and that over time, things will really compound and grow for you. So imagine if you started saving ten thousand a year, or twenty thousand dollars a year, right? And you started putting money away, and you made sacrifices. So right, so but when you have that sacrifice and you can build up that pile of money, it gives you that freedom that we're talking about. So it goes back to that hard easy. Is it hard for a twenty-two year old to go out and save five thousand dollars a year? Probably, right? Okay, but but if they do that. Things get a lot easier later. Think about when they're 62; they have twice as twice the amount of money just by putting an extra $5,000 a year earlier. Um, so, the, so it's really important to get in the habit because the compounding effect really, really has the biggest impact in the later years.
0: So, with the compounding effect, as you just mentioned, you know, sometimes you might not see that wealth come you know, until you're a lot older, you know, you spend all these years saving, you don't see like the results right away. But what do you think is like, what are the most common traits that you see in the most wealthy people out there,
1: the ones that have built it for themselves, I can speak to more than the ones that inherited it, right. But, um, but I will say, um, the ones that build it for themselves, they first have the discipline to, to save and, and sac- make sacrifice, right. But then, you know, there was a great book I read like 20 years ago called Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, and some of the things I learned in there were really, really impactful. Um, and his second book, I think, it was called Cash Flow Quadrant, um, another good book to read for young people, especially if you can kind of at least get the concepts that he's talking about, then it would be really helpful. But, you know, the rules are made, all the rules the government make are made for real estate owners and business owners, right, or investors. Right? And all the tax rules, all the government rules are made for, for, for those people, right? So there's two things that are really important. There are two questions you can ask yourself. How can I utilize other people's money or other people's time to build my wealth? So there's a thing called leverage, right? So if I, if I think about it and I said, okay, people that own investment real estate. So the house, if you buy a house that you live in, that's not really an investment, Okay, that's um, a liability. So what what do I mean by that? So that's one of the things that was a real big distinction in the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, was he talked about assets and liabilities. And the way to determine whether you own an asset or not is does it generate income or does it generate an expense? And um, the house that you live in is not an asset. It's a liability. Why is it a liability? Because you have to pay taxes, you have to pay the interest on the mortgage, you're paying utilities, maintenance, upkeep, all those different things, right? So when people you know, get those pay raises and they get a bigger house, they've just created a bigger liability. So the trick is, how do I, um, it's, but if you think about it, there's certain, if I buy a, a property, and then I have tenants pay me rent, right? So wh- whose money am I using? So when I use other people's money, to buy a house, I'm using a bank's money. I'm using renter's money to build my wealth, because they're paying down the mortgage. And there's also tax breaks that I get, so I'm using the government's money. That's one way to build wealth. So I gave this example. This is for
0: having rent people rent out? Renting
1: for me That's investment real estate, right? So if you think about it, 20 years ago, right about that time, my friend, um, Greg Rand, he came to me. Um, he was going to put money in a 529 plan for his daughter and um, he asked me about doing that, and Greg, he's very big in the real estate industry. Um, he was partners in a big residential real estate brokerage firm at the time, and now he's one of the top guys at Caldwell Banker, and he's on TV all the time, he's a really bright guy. I said, Greg, if I were you, my college fund for my kids would be buying an investment property rather than putting money into a 529 plan. So at the time, you know, he was gonna give me $20,000 to put into the, to the 529, and, You know, I said, well, Greg, let's assume that that, let's say you add $150 a month to that and you earn 10% a year, which is a nice rate of return on your investments. If I put $20,000 down and $150 a month when his daughter was going to be 18, we figured out it was going to be worth, I think it was $162,000. I said, Greg, why don't you take that $20,000? And at the time, you could buy investment properties with like 10% down. So he bought a condo for $200,000 and he took a 15-year mortgage. So I said, okay, well, actually, I think his daughter was three at the time, and we figured it was 15 years before college, right? So he took a 15-year mortgage, and by then it's paid off. And let's say that you don't even break even on the, the condo, meaning that the rent is not as much as what it costs you to keep it, and it costs you $150 a month, which is what, what the deal ended up being. So you look at that as your contribution to your college fund. So in 15 years, the property's paid off. So if if it got a 0% rate of return, let's say the real estate market stunk for 15 years and it was only worth what you paid for it. It's worth $200,000. So it's still worth more than what you would have done getting 10% return in your mutual funds at $162,000. But real estate, we said, let's let's assume a 5% growth rate on real estate at the time that would grow to $460,000. So instead of having 160 or $460,000, right? And then I said to him, well, do you have to sell the property to pay for college? He said, No, right? I said of course So I said, Why don't you and we assume the college was gonna cost about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars at that time all in. It's a little more than that, maybe it's, it's gonna two, be like a hundred thousand in a couple no, of years. Yeah. <laughs> know, but it was two fifty all in. So yeah. you know, so maybe it's two eighty, you know, percent. So anyway, I so said you take let's say when Diane turns eighteen, you, you take out a loan for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you take a new mortgage out because you have your properties paid off, it's worth four sixty. But now you have your tenants paying that down again. When Diane, 15 years after that, when it's paid off again, you have an asset worth $860,000, right? If you had put money into a 529 plan, you would have had $160,000 by college and it wouldn't have even been enough to pay for college. But by buying real estate, you would have been able to utilize other people's money to to pay for college and to grow your wealth and you'd be left with a property worth $860,000 at the end of the day. So, and real estate's not for everybody, but...
0: Yeah, why do you think that not as many, like, I feel like I've learned that it's such a great way to, like, you know, build wealth over time. Why do you think not as many people, like, do it?
1: Because the financial, because I think the real estate industry hasn't done, and this is one of Greg's missions, the real estate industry has not done a great job of of showing that real estate as an investment, residential real estate investment is a great investment, Right. Um, but also, people might not want the hassle. They worry about all the obstacles of doing that, right? Like owning residential real estate. I don't want to get calls in the middle of the night, or they're not handy, or things like that. And it's not for everybody. Then there's the, um, you know, so, so so that's part of it, right? I think that's the and the financial services industry does a great job of promoting 529 plans and things like that for college. where we don't think it's really the best way. And then, so then when you talk about other people's money or other people's time, right, we'll get back to the question about the wealthiest people out there, right? So in the real estate example, you're using other people's money, right? You're using bank's money to borrow because you're maybe, in that situation, he put $20,000 down, but he borrowed $180,000 to buy the condo, right? He's using his tenant's money. And then there's tax uh, depreciation and things like that that you get with real estate, but then that, that you're going to get benefits from but when you own a business is the other way so a lot of our clients are people that have built up businesses you know i work with a lot of founders of companies that are contemplating an exit so they built up a company and they want to sell it for 10 20 30 million dollars or 40 million dollars or whatever the number is but they they didn't get rich by investing in the stock market they got rich by building up a business they diversify in the stock market. So entrepreneurs, right, if you think about it, the rules are made for entrepreneurs, there's a lot of tax breaks that you get as an entrepreneur, right? Because you're taking a lot of risk, but you're leveraging other people's time, right? The reason why Altium has grown so much, it's not because of me, it's because of the combined efforts of every employee that we have, and they all play a role on that. So I've leveraged my time by utilizing other people's time, and to help the company grow, and so we built up a, a, a successful company as a result. So if you think about it, those are the two biggest ways to build wealth: is by owning business or owning investment real estate. You diversify in the stock market. You don't. You can get. Listen, you can build up significant wealth by being. If you're an employee being a disciplined saver and taking a percentage of what you make and putting it away, you can build up a very nice life for yourself. But when you ask me who the wealthiest people are, they're the ones that have built it through um, owning businesses and owning real estate.
0: Yeah. So you've talked about how building a business or owning real estate or real estate investment is like the best ways to build wealth um, over a long period of time. But for the average employee that, you know, wants to build financial security, but doesn't want to own their own business or invest in real estate how do you recommend they do that
1: i I would just say once again it's about getting the good habits of um delaying gratification in some areas so paying yourself first right putting money in a 401k certainly up to the, the mat point where you're getting a match but i would say put as much as you can into that uh 401k but also then you know you want to build the first thing you want to do is build liquidity right so begin saving money into things like a money market just to build up that security so that if you lose your job or, or you know you own a house and like there's repairs that need to be done, you wanna have access to liquidity first. And once you build up six months to a year savings, then you start investing in things like mutual funds or stocks or things like that. And and you wanna I would say certainly saving twenty percent of your income. Now, for young people living with their parents, you should be saving like eighty percent of your income. But once you're out on your own, you wanna try and have that goal of saving twenty percent of your income. And if you do that, you're gonna build up a very financially successful life. So if you save that twenty percent first, you will build financial security. And that gives you options, that gives you freedom, and that gives you ability to do the things that you want. So I think that's really important.
0: And also for For people that want to you know save a lot of money what are some of the expenses that we usually think we can't control but often we can well
1: from from a financial standpoint one of the things that you should always look at is the fees that you're paying right it's one thing to pay fees to an advisor that's really doing a great job right and then there's other thing paying fees to different mutual funds or 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 that aren't really Performing or, or uh, beating the S&P 500. So we find a lot of people, we recommend looking at ind- index investing and there are ways to do that with an advisor too that can be very valuable and beneficial. But watching your fees, oh, like a 1% rate of return over that period of time, just to give you an example, right? That same 40-year example, if I only earn 9% instead of 10%, on my money over that 40 year period of time. Instead of having 2.2 million, I would have had 1.689 million, right? That's so crazy. So that just 1% return difference over that 40 years was half a million dollars of wealth, right? So we have to really keep an eye on the fees that we're paying there. But I just think it's, it's just everything, like making the little choices. Do I go out to dinner tonight? Do I order takeout? Do I bring my lunch to work, right? For the average employee, just being smart, do, you know, do I have to get the most expensive car or if I save a, 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 an extra $100 a month on the car that I get, you know, will that, what will that mean over time, right? It has those decisions, Those they seem like little decisions, but if you make them consistently over time, it makes a, makes a huge impact, right? You just saw that 1% difference on that on, on a $5,000 a year annual savings rate over a 40 year period of time a one percent difference in your earnings is half a million dollars to you right so like there are a lot of it's a little changes that you don't see the problem is you don't see them for a long time so you have to have the faith that if you stick with whatever plan that you're doing then over time it, it it works out but as far as costs go i just think being smart about the interest that you're paying on Mortgages And one of the things that people do is they want to have a mortgage that pays down their principal. But right now with interest rates being so low, I wouldn't, I would, I would get an interest only mortgage. And I would take that difference in money that would have been going to my mortgage payment and putting that into an investment account and just compound it over time. If I'm paying 3% on my mortgage, why do I want to prepay that and get that down? If I can earn 10% elsewhere with that extra money, I can always pay off my mortgage sooner but with money that I've been putting away into mutual funds or stocks or things like that over a period of time. So they're just things that you can do, keep your costs down and help you build wealth. But a lot of it's just the, the little decisions that you make. It's do I have to go to Starbucks for four bucks a day or can I make my own coffee at home and put it in a mug? Those little things mean hundreds of thousands of dollars if not millions of dollars throughout our lifetime.
0: But what happens if like, you know, you're hearing this and you're like 50 years old And, you know, you've made all those mistakes, you've gone out to eat when you, you know, you could have just stayed in and you didn't save it all. Like, what do you recommend for that person?
1: You know, I think it it really becomes a challenge, right, for people. And the sooner that you, you know, so one of the biggest expenses that people have is their home. If they've lived in a home for a long time, they might be emotionally attached to it. But the sooner that they get out downsize where they're living, keep their housing costs as low as possible, would be really, really helpful, right? Because you have taxes, interest payments, maintenance, utilities, and things like that. Sometimes even selling your house and renting, like if somebody has a house that, that's paid off and it's a million dollars, and and it costs them $3,000 a month to maintain their house between the taxes and everything else. Well, now if I sell that house and it's worth a million dollars and let's say to rent a place in, in, in where I, I'm, I'm living right now costs me $4,000 a month or $50,000 a year, that million dollars could generate that $50,000 a year that you're paying in rent. And now you've saved the money that because you've unlocked that asset. And now you can have that $3,000 a month that you were spending to upkeep your house. You don't have to spend that anymore. So basically you're living without the expense of the $3,000 a month, and your assets are paying for your rent. So there are different things that you can do to improve your situation. But one of the things you really have to look at is, you know, a lot of times people get to 50 also, and they've been raising their kids. Kids are expensive. So at that point, (laughs) when that stops, they might have freed up cash flow. They just might have to play catch up and just say, you know what, this money that I've been spending raising my kids, I now have to save that for the next 10 years or so or 15 years. And once again, you know, kids, kids are expensive. They might be able to build up a lot of financial security over that 10 or 15 year period of time by saving the money that they were spending on raising their children.
0: Yeah, this is definitely really like eye opening, because I wish they taught this type of stuff in school, like your own personal finance. It's something that I think is so important and so applicable to every area of your life. And I just want to thank you, dad, for talking to me about this, because it's helped me a lot. And I'm happy I have someone in the house to you know discuss this and walk me through it. Um, but do you have any other final comments, you know, to send listeners off with? Of? Well, I, it's funny that you said
1: that. I, I, I agree 100% that I think the schools really should make personal finance a requirement in college right, and in high school. I think the earlier that you teach kids about money and how to manage it, the better our country will be. But at, but at the same time, part of the reason why I got into the business, truthfully, is because my dad was struggling financially at the time. And I said, so even if I'm a miserable failure in this business... I want to at least learn as much as I can about personal finance so I didn't make the same mistakes my dad made. And so one of the things I would say is just if you're you're a young person, do whatever you can. You don't have to be a financial guru or financial (laughs) whiz, right? But just do as much as you can to educate yourself. And, and learn the good habits to build over time, but learn about insurances, learn about investments. You don't have to, once again, you don't have to be an expert, but you want to be able to know the right questions to ask a financial advisor when you're in a situation to have one, uh, but really just get in the good habits of, of saving at a young age and educating yourself and learning about this stuff. It doesn't have to be a full-time job, but if you do a little bit of reading, you know, over a period of time, you're going to end up getting a working knowledge that'll be really beneficial to you over time. The last thing you want to do is put your head in the sand and forget about it. You really want to educate yourself.
0: Yeah, and even if you're like in high school or like early college years, even if you're not putting away a lot of money a month, like if you just put down like like nothing crazy, maybe like $50 or $100 a month. And like you, as long as you're just building that habit and then once you start making more money, you already have that habit, you're used to it. And then by that time, you can, like, start actually putting in, like, a, a greater amount of money, which I think is huge. And, like, again, Dad, I just want to thank you for joining because I just think it's so important because money, like, you know, you can just look at it as, like, just, like, one thing, but it opens up so many possibilities, you know, in your life. And, like, I know when I'm not making money, like, I can definitely tell, like, I feel less free, so I do appreciate you talking to that.
1: Yeah, well, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun to ask really great great questions, and uh, I'm glad that you're learning this stuff at 19 and 20, now 20 years old,
0: um, yeah. so that you can <laughs> compound this and, and you can get off the payroll over here. No, nah, right? no, that's never happened. <laughs> um, but awesome. And you know, for anybody, again, that's interested in starting their own podcast and putting out their own message, I attached a Buzzsprout link, so start your own account today. Also, if you want to reach out to me, have any questions, 19-Year-Old Trink Podcast on Instagram and my personal page is WJG23. But thanks again, guys, and have a great rest of your day. Take care.